Our scripture passage for today is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> Fifteen. Oi. Ten commandments for all to obey. You know, isn't that... It's painful, but isn't that how so often we view the Ten Commandments anymore? I mean, even the number 10 just sounds so arbitrary. Why not 15? Why not 11? Or maybe our culture could say two or three of them are a little relevant, maybe. I mean, as modern people, we know, we've seen in history where intense legalism has destroyed people's lives, where cultural customs or social mores have even been used to further injustice. And so we hear, oh, we're throwing off the shackles of that old oppressive law. We get to go and do better and more grander things. History, we're told, is in the trajectory of liberation. And finally, finally a freedom where we can choose what we want whenever we want. Where what is right for you is really what is right for you. And who is anyone else to judge. You know, in the words of Elsa from Disney's Frozen, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go, as my daughter sings. Um, but but what, if, what if we've let go of too much? What if we've let go of too much and that isn't even freedom anymore? Who's to say we're headed in the right direction? Just because history's going to a particular point in time doesn't mean it's the right point in time, doesn't mean it's a good point in time. And who's to say our grandchildren won't look back on us as people who believe the cultural lie and scoff? I wonder if this desire for freedom that's latent within all of us isn't pointing us to something totally different than the rest of our culture is pointing us to. In our passage, we find a revolutionary understanding of freedom. It's not new, necessarily, but it's groundbreaking, and it changes everything. 
And here it is. Freedom always comes with boundaries. Freedom always comes with boundaries. Doesn't that sound weird? I mean, two words you'd never expect to hear in the same grammatical structure, freedom and boundaries. How do they fit together? Well, let's look at our story. If you've been with us this summer, um, you've probably been able to remember that we're in the book of Exodus. We've been following the life of Moses, which is also the historical trajectory of Israel. Ralph Waldo Emerson so wisely put, there is, no, there is properly no history, only biography. We study and we look at history through the lives of powerful men and women throughout history. And, and here as we study the life of Moses, we see Israel who for generations, for almost as far back as they can remember, they've felt the sting of Egypt's whip. Freedom, if it was even whispered, was more like a pipe dream. And the word on the street was that God had given up on his people. <clears throat> but something happens. God shows up, and he, he does this amazing deliverance where not one Israelite loses their life in the process. And we see some two million of God's people now making their way to a land that God had promised their ancestors generations before. But a question begins to percolate in the heart and minds of God's people. What does freedom look like? It's the what now after deliverance, after you've graduated college, after you finally got that job, the week after the honeymoon. What now? Especially for Israel when, when all you've ever known is slavery, when all your grandparents have ever known is slavery. What does it look like to be free? Well, in our text this morning, after three months of traveling, following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, we read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, on that day, on that day of three months, Israel finally comes to a place called the Wilderness of Sinai. On that day. Now the Hebrew here behind our English translation is trying to highlight in bright yellow the importance of this time and of this place. You see, the first five books of the Bible, what many scholars call the Pentateuch, which means five scrolls, the five scrolls of Moses, covers a, roughly a history of about 2,700 years. Now, this moment in Sinai, when they're at Wilderness of Sinai, is about 11 months. That's less than 1% of 2,700 years. And yet, the writings that come out of this 11 months cover 30% of our Pentateuch. Any thoughtful reader will say, something really big is about to happen in this place and in this time. And we should spark and turn up our ears <laughs> and listen in too. You see, that day, on that day... This was always a part of God's plan. Before, <clears throat> months before God provides bread in the wilderness, months before God parts the Red Sea, months before God brings the plagues on an unjust Egypt, we see God call Moses in his 80s in a burning bush that was not consumed. And listen to what he says to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Mount Sinai. 
Before they even brought about the exodus, it was about bringing them back to Mount Sinai. Then when Moses finally does go before Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. God isn't just delivering his people from slavery. He's delivering them to a particular kind of freedom. And the suspense is building with every step they take towards the wilderness of Sinai. What's God going to say? What's he going to reveal about himself? It's about bringing in his people first. It's the destination before the destination, if you want to think of it that way. So on that day, when Israel finally shows up to the wilderness of Sinai, what do they see? Bursting out of the desert flatlands are these burgeoning mountain ranges with cold, obdurate stone. And even though it's nothing necessarily amazing to look at, if you've been walking through the desert and seeing nothing for so long, those mountains look like your salvation. And you can't take your eyes off of them. Well, when you arrive at the foot of the mountain range, Moses, some 80 years young at this point, he travels up a familiar stone pathway up into the cloud, the cloud that had gone before God's people and now rests on the top of Mount Sinai, and you wait. Moses isn't up very long, at least not at this particular journey up the mountain, and he comes back down, out of the cloud, down to the dust of the desert, and he comes with an invitation from God to his people in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3, where God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, for us in a 21st century context, it's hard to really navigate what God is saying here in this passage. So let me give us a little bit of context. For starters, God is engaging a really common ancient Near Eastern practice of making a covenant. This is where a more powerful king would go to a less powerful people group and make a covenant, a treaty with them in which the less powerful people would offer their allegiance, they would offer tribute to this more powerful king, and in return, he would promise, one, not to destroy them, which is a pretty good deal, and then secondly, promise to protect them from anyone else who would seek to do the same. Now, what's fascinating from historians is that we see in every other ancient Near Eastern religion do we not find that any other God makes a covenant with his people? Yahweh is absolutely unique here. This is the only place we see this in ancient Near Eastern history. Secondly, God doesn't seem to be gaining anything out of this deal, except for maybe a headache if you know anything about the rest of the story. And yet he promises himself to his people. And so I want to just help us understand what God is basically saying. It's pretty much like God is saying this. I own the earth, and I long for its good. I delivered you, Israel, out of slavery and carried you here to meet me 
to now be my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests for my service to now show the whole world a wholly different understanding of what it looks like to be a nation of freed men and women who flourish, who listen to my voice, a life as I've intended. And all you have to do is listen to my voice, keep my covenant, hold fast to my treaty. And I want you to put yourself in Israel's shoes for just a moment. Can you imagine for generations Back in Egypt, all you ever heard was, you're nothing but a slave, worthless, chattel, property. And now you hear from the God of the universe. I delivered you so that you might be mine, that you might be my treasured possession, that you might be my people, that you might be my representatives. I mean, back in Egypt, the only person who represented a god was Pharaoh. And now God says, this group of slaves represent me to the world. It's no surprise then, when we get to chapter 19, verse 8, that all of Israel responds with, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. (laughs) When they start hearing that they're treasured, I mean, there's something so freeing about what God says here, kind of like when a father talks and looks at his son and says, that's my boy, right? That God wants them, that they belong to him with great joy and ownership. There's not the distance that so many others have treated them with. You deserve to be over there, slave. No, God says, you're mine here with me. And when you know you're treasured by someone, you know they want your best, don't you? You're going to trust them that they want your best. Now, I want you to imagine that the person who treasures you can part the Red Sea, who can win life's most difficult battles, who can provide for your greatest of needs in the midst of a desert. What are you going to do when you get your freedom? You're going to use that freedom now to push manipulation and coercion aside, and you're going to pursue his voice. You're going to pursue listening to him. Whatever he says, he has the words of life because he cherishes me. He is good and he wants my good. And I want you to hear this this morning. The God in the desert then is the God of today. He hasn't changed. You know, God still longs for you to be a part of his treasured possession. God still longs for you to be a part of his treasured possession. Do you believe that? No matter... And whatever someone has called you, whatever someone else has named you in a past relationship, the verbal abuse you've received from a a fellow employee or a boss, the burden of family gossip or gossip of friends that was inaccurate, God has fought for us to make us his treasured possession. And he wants you to be free from anxiety. He wants you to be free from the insecurity of feeling alone and to know that he loves you desperately. He wants you to be free from loneliness, free from sin. And that freedom always comes within the bounds of belonging to him. Not just letting him take you out of Egypt, but now belonging to him. He wants the best for you, his treasure. 
Will you let him? Now, this, this freedom that comes in belonging to God, it, it's always accompanied with boundaries. Actually, like every relationship that healthy, that's healthy does. Every healthy relationship has boundaries. And it's, what we see here is that God treasures his people. He knows Israel really well, but Israel has no idea who their God is. And has no idea how to relate to this wonderful God who's just brought them out of slavery. I want you to imagine again, as we re-enter the story of Exodus 19 and 20, it's late in the day. Moses comes down the mountain again. It seems like he's always going up and down. You know, in the, the old Ten Commandments movie, it's just like Moses went up once and came down and had everything. That's not what we see. He's making multiple trips in our text, seven roughly. And when he comes down, this time he comes with an awkward request. Everybody do your laundry. <laughs> Why? Because God is coming down in three days to the top of the mountain. Now, imagine the president of the United States is coming to your house. What are you going to do? Are you going to get out the paper plates, throw the bologna on there, put on your work clothes? Of course not. What are you going to do? You're going to find some prime rib. You're going to get out the fine china. If you've got nice dress clothes, you're going to throw them on. You're going to clean up your place. Why? Because that shows respect. It shows honor that the one who is coming to your home is someone deserving of great dignity. And so what we see here is that young and old are washing their clothes Three months of stains from walking in the desert. But there's more. The mountain where Moses always seems to tread up and down is now said to be off limits. And these boundaries are severe. If anybody steps foot on the mountain, whether animal or beast, the community is commanded to stone them. Now, that's a boundary you don't want to cross, okay? And if you don't stone them, then somebody's got to shoot them with an arrow. Now, day three rolls around. We'll come back to that. Day three rolls around, and the sun rises, although you probably wouldn't notice it because the pillar of cloud above Mount Sinai continues to grow and become a bit more ominous, actually. Moses calls everybody to the foot of the mountain, but you're sure not to touch the foot of the mountain the smoke grows and it grows and it begins to circle and smoke comes out of the top of the mountain. The text says, like smoke coming out of a kiln. Lightning begins to strike on top of the mountain, jumping from cloud to cloud. The thunder continues to roar. The, the whole mountain begins to shake so much so that you don't even feel like you can stand up anymore. And then you hear what sounds like a trumpet, a ram's horn, getting louder and louder and louder until finally... Amidst the clouds, there seems to be some break. You see what looks like fire illuminating the top of the mountain. And you realize God has stepped down on the top of Mount Sinai. And his voice booms forth like thunder as he calls out to the people. And suddenly, at that moment, everybody knew that God was nobody's homeboy. <laughs> this God wasn't the tender-hearted grandpa with a white beard up in the sky. He was the God who comes in justice that makes the whole creation shake. And your feet begin to shake. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, when Israel sees this, their heart sinks. And they actually begin to run 
Because they think this is the God we're supposed to talk plainly to. This is the, we're supposed to be his priests. How can we be near him? This was nothing like what they expected. I mean, how could this God, so magnificent, so powerful, simultaneously treasure us as slaves? And the people trembled. And, and Moses says something in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, when they're seeing all of this. He says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. That the fear of him, so don't fear, but the fear of him will reside in you that you may not sin. What's going on there? In other words, Moses is saying, don't be terrified that God's going to kill you this morning. <laughs> Instead, you need to understand whom it is that treasures you and that his voice is very seriously undertaken when he speaks. Don't take this lightly. This isn't a kind word from your barber. This is God talking. You know, it's natural for us in our culture to be shocked with this picture of God. And maybe to even now take the God who descends on Mount Sinai and pit him against the God who becomes flesh in Jesus and say, look how different they are. This is a very different God. And say that God isn't that intense anymore. But the very fact that God chafes against our cultural sensibilities is a proof that he is indeed God. God is above culture. He's supra-culture. And he challenges every culture in various nuances. And he hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I want to ask you this morning, this is an important question, before we get to our takeaways, what comes into your mind when you think of God? What comes to your mind when you think of God? Is it the God of Mount Sinai? Be honest. Does he look anything like the picture we've seen here? Beautiful, but awe-filled, powerful, one who can create the world, one who enacts justice, the owner of the earth, the king of the universe, the holy one, other, mighty, and yet simultaneously treasures slaves. This is the God that we relate to on his terms. He's the one who defines the boundaries not us. And so while Israel trembles on the sidelines, telling Moses to go talk with God because he's just too much for them, we see in Exodus 20, verse 21, Moses walks into the cloud. And here's God speak what was read for us this morning, the Ten Commands, the Ten Devars, the Ten Words, the, the Ten Commandments. The owner of the earth was calling his people to now embrace a newfound Freedom with boundaries etched in stone by the very finger of God we come to see in Exodus chapter 31. Now, so often we just focus on the commands themselves and we dive in deep there. As well we should and at other times we have. But the very story itself gives us a radical picture of freedom as to what God is doing here. And specifically, I think there are three lessons we can learn today. At least three. Pastors love threes, so why not? Um, to truly grasp what God is saying to us here. And the first is this. We need to learn that a freedom not bound by anything will leave us with nothing. A freedom not bound by anything will leave us with nothing. 
You know, believe it or not, the history of Protestants has been one of some of the biggest champions of personal choice and individual freedom. We see scripture as critically calling each individual to making a deliberate and conscious choice to believe. That's personal freedom. That's individual choice. And yet today, in the trajectory of our culture, the understanding of freedom has gone even further. For so many, freedom means that no one or nothing can constrain my decisions to fulfill my desires. No one or nothing can constrain my decisions to fulfill my desires. And there are a lot of assumptions latent in that. And I don't want to build a straw man. That's a much longer conversation for another day. But I want to go at this from another angle. And the first thing I want to say is, here's the deal. If you choose this understanding of freedom and you try to consistently live into it, you'll be free. But I don't think it's a freedom you want. You will be free of any sort of genuine relationship for the long haul. Now, I'm assuming that you want what you believe to be consistent with your life, and not everybody agrees that to be true. Some call it hypocrisy. Others call it something. Now, here's the deal. I do have a value for consistency that what I think and believe has shown up in my life. And if you try to live into that belief that no one or nothing can constrain my decisions to fulfill my desires, you'll never have a loving relationship over the long haul. Because to walk with someone... To liberally show someone love, you have to willfully lose some lower freedoms to gain some greater ones. You have to sacrifice some desires and some freedoms. You have to allow some habits to change, to live for and to now love someone. Now, one area I've seen this take shape is in my marriage. You know, my day off used to be, well, my day off, (laughs) I could have taken a day trip, I could go for a run, I could get immersed in a good book. But no more are my days off just mine. Instead, I gladly surrender on my good days. (laughs) My day off to now be our days together. Our days together. I give up some of my freedoms as an individual to spend my money and my time any which way I so choose to now gain those moments together, sacrifice some desires to now share and joy with my wife and my children, and it's so worth it. But I have to sacrifice some lesser freedoms to gain some even greater ones. Which is why I ultimately don't think any of us wants, nor can we, live a life of freedom without boundaries. You see, everybody has boundaries. Everyone lives with boundaries. Another way of saying that is, we all have a law, even if we don't succumb to the law. We all have a law, even if we don't succumb to this law. Now, maybe your only command is, thou shalt not say, thou shalt not, to anyone. But there's your command. There's your law. Maybe yours is the 613 commands we see strewn across the pages of Judaism. What mountains do you consider sacred? What topics are no, is no one allowed to bring up around you? What perspectives that if someone else holds, they're dead to you? Those are the boundaries you've laid. 
Sure, it may not be a physical killing, but it's a relational dead end. We've all got mountains that we consider sacred. We've all got a law. We see this even in the most free-flowing uh, form of music, jazz. I don't know if any of you were able to make it out to our Brookside campus when they held our jazz concert with Con Campbell, but he did such a good job unpracking improvisation within jazz. You know, so from the outside looking in, improvisation looks so free-flowing. But what he goes on to say is that improvisation needs boundaries if it's going to be beautiful and good. I mean, there are good jazz crews and bad jazz crews. You know, it takes years of practice to know what notes to play and what notes not to play. You can't just get up there and grab a saxophone and just move your fingers around and then it's jazz. Nobody will want to come to hear you play anyway. <laughs> I guess you could and you could call it jazz. No one may agree with you. But then you need to learn the certain notes. You need to know the chord progressions and how those notes fit within the movement of the band. And then there's tempo. How do you fit within tempo? Is it 4-4 four, four time or 6-8 time? You see, from the outside looking in, jazz looks so free. No constraints. Finally, free and free indeed. No rules on me. But the more you learn, the more you engage, you see that freedom always requires boundaries, even in jazz. And those who have done some of the deepest thinking on life and love see the same as well. And so we come to the real question, the question that needs to be asked of every human heart. Who's best positioned to define your boundaries? Who's best positioned to define your boundaries? Who will bring together all the different notes of your life to make them beautiful and good, like a good jazz piece? Is it you? If so, was it your 20-year-old you? Your 30-year-old you? You look back at your 20-year-old you and you say, oh, man, I, would never, I wish I could go back and change some decisions. Is it your 50-year-old you? Maybe it's our judicial system. I'm a moral person. I've got a good heart. Compared to what? Culture? Your parents? A small group of friends? Who do you believe promises freedom? And who can actually deliver? And this is where I want to propose that God's holy commands point to the order freedom demands. God's holy commands point to the order freedom demands. All of us know the reality of competing desires that war within our heart. I love butter, okay? <laughs> Not too many people love butter as much as I love butter. I love a little bit of toast with my butter. Just give me a stick of butter and I'm golden. Disgusting, right? I know, okay? My wife tells me, I know. But I also love to live. That's also probably a silly desire, right? So, but if I continue to just indulge one desire of eating butter, I am slowly going to forfeit with my cholesterol levels my desire to live. And it'll short circuit. I have to make a decision between two competing desires. Let's get a little more serious. Your marriage is on the rocks. And so and so at work has given you the attention that your spouse hasn't given you for years. Do you fight for your marriage or do you have an affair? Who defines your boundaries? And it's in these moments that we begin to see that God's commands aren't arbitrary, but are necessary to live in freedom as he's designed us. I mean, think of just these 10 here in Exodus. 
I want to walk through them with you just quickly, a quick, quick cursory reading with an understanding of freedom. God wants us to be free to only worship the one true God and not be enslaved to the appeasing countless other gods. You go to Hinduism, something bad happens in your life, it's because you didn't appease the right God. Which one? There's so many. The one true God. Finally, freedom to know whose face I should seek. God wants us to be free to worship Him and to respect His name, to enjoy the freedom of rest, to not always have to be working seven days a week like slaves, to be free from outside voices and culture at younger ages in our psychological development and said, honor parents. There's freedom in that. Free from revenge when not engaging in murder. The freedom that comes in being bound in the promises of marriage and knowing that your spouse will stay true to those promises in marriage. And free from anxiety as to who they might see at work, who they might see at the mall, who they might see at the grocery. They're going to stay true to their promises. Respecting other people's belongings and the freedom that comes when you know others will respect your belongings. The freedom to be honest. And seeing that as a cultural value and the freedom to not have to spend your days coveting after something else that your neighbor has, but learning to be content. These are language, this is a language of freedom. Now there's more that we can mine here, but the question is, is this a God who's a killjoy? Or is this a God who comes to give joy and life? You know, later when Jesus is asked about the law, he says a couple of things. One is, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There's a distinction there. Secondly, when he's asked about summarizing the law, what has he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the, prophet and the, all the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commands. And the Old Testament is littered with these commands where God is seeking to empower his people to do exactly that, love. Some of those are very uniquely tied in with the Jewish culture, to be sure. But what we see here is that God's law is God's love concretized in everyday life. God's law is God's love concretized. It's made tangible in everyday life and community and society. And see, only God's holy commands as the holy designer are the way in which that point to the order freedom demands. Do you believe that this morning? That God in his great wisdom and his goodness, even here, is shining forth? Is he the one who defines your boundaries? Or is that you? Is that someone else in our culture? Is it the ever-changing tide of our moral landscape? But there's the rub, isn't it? Because God's laws are so good. And in them, they've always revealed God's just character and his desire for our freedom. And yet, we are the ones who are prone to wander. We are the ones whose hearts are deceitful and wicked. We are the ones who see God's boundaries and transgress, cross over them. And so being guilty, run from God. But hear the good news this morning. When all we wanted was freedom from God, God paid the price for our freedom with him. When all we wanted was freedom from God, that's exactly when God paid the price for our freedom 
with him. When God descends upon the mounts of Sinai and comes with his good commands, his righteous demands, his right demands of us, humanity has proven time and time again that we cannot, that we will not keep them. And it reveals much more of what's going inside of us rather than who God is. And yet, God does something afresh again. He comes in the person of Jesus the Christ. The lawmaker in all of his wisdom becomes flesh and becomes the law keeper for us. And climbs another mount, the mount of crucifixion, and dies for us, the law breakers. And so paid our penalty for breaking God's good commands in our stead. And so we hear the words of Jesus afresh that if we trust in Him and His atoning work on the cross and His life-giving resurrection, then the words of John 8, they ring out with the tune of liberty. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. No, more, no longer enslaved. This morning, will you surrender your self-determination to Jesus? And let him give you freedom. It only comes in belonging to him that you will receive life-giving and eternal freedom that's paradoxical in our structure today. Now, to be clear, this narrow path in which we seek to follow Jesus is not a path void of boundaries. The difference now is that we see those boundaries as good. The difference is now that we've been given the Holy Spirit to walk in the good ways that God has laid out before us, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And we learn our new name as treasured. And we walk in God's good ways with all of God's people and even with God himself. Will you let him bring you freedom? You must first let him own you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our good Father, who speaks over his people, that's my boy. God, we long to cherish you, to trust your wisdom. We are children. You are the Father. May we obey you and learn to listen to your voice. So often we are so arrogant as to thinking we're smarter than you and we dis disregard your good commands. Lord, may you humble our hearts before it's too late. May we rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross who has paid our penalty. And may that be a great symbol of your love, not only paying our penalty, but also revealing your love that you are trustworthy and in the resurrection, you have the power to even transform us to now live a life of flourishing as you've designed. God, may we have a hunger for your freedom, true freedom, freedom within your boundaries, the boundaries of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.